Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. He's a pastor and a professor, a social worker and a spiritual leader. Dr. Kevin Daniels wears many hats here in Baltimore City. Now he's talking about the work he's doing to rebuild communities here in Baltimore, one seed at a time. Dr. Kevin Daniels, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, glad to be here. You grew up in Baltimore, so tell us a little bit about your background and what it was like growing up here in the city. I grew up on, in, of course, Division Street. We moved from down at Murphy Homes, uh, the projects, and then we moved up near Division Street, Penn North, Sandtown, Upton area. And for me personally, even though they, it was during a time of racial challenge and all of those things that took place, you know, back in those days, I think that what was critical for me was the fact that we had a lot of community support. Most of us are, even to this day, are extremely close. We are in touch with most of the people that, you know, we grew up with. Some have gone. But I think there was a cushioning and a shielding of us from some of the hard kind of aspects of things that was taking place during that particular time. So, again, I would say I would argue for a community. Community has been real strong. Have you seen that change in the Baltimore of today or do you still feel like there is that sort of protection from children through the community? No, it has changed, and not just internally, but externally as well. Here in Baltimore, we moved from an industrial kind of setting to a more digital setting. And a lot of, because it happened with my dad, um, he was a part of Bethlehem still, um, a phenomenal guy. But when there was a change from more of the steel to more of digital, mm-hmm. um, I think that there was a, there was a shift in family, some of those policies that took place where fathers could not necessarily be a part of family, AFDC, some of those policies, they could not be in the home where mothers were given, those kind of things. That, but, but it was a lot of just political policy, but also internal things that shifted from us really being a community. And with all of that, yes, I do think that um, there's been a change. Mm-hmm. How important is it, do you feel like, to sort of being able to building back to that community that you grew up in? Well, it's been my lifelong goal, you know, as a social worker, professor of social work at the School of Social Work, uh, Morgan State University. I started off clinical down at Johns Hopkins working with the homeless population until, um, of course, I saw my dad, and I always tell this story, but I saw my dad underneath of the bridge while I was working. And he was homeless. And not only was he homeless, he was paralyzed because he took a fall. So I think that in building that back, so it's been a part of my life story. I moved from just doing clinical work and diagnoses and intervention to more of a macro perspective. How do we build community? How do we not only build community, but how we build community and it is sustainable? Mm -hmm. You sort of touched on it a little bit, but you wear a whole lot of different hats. So for people who are not (laughs) familiar with you, I'm sure we could fill the whole half hour with all the hats that you wear. (laughs) But but tell us a little bit about some of the work that you do here. Oh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> licensed social worker, um, professor at Morgan State for the last 18 years, but also a pastor in the local community, 21217. I actually grew up in the church that I'm pastoring. Um, mm-hmm. One of the churches that I'm pastoring, I grew up in Trinity Baptist, but in the church that I'm pastoring now, St. Martin, I grew up there for a while, then came back to take it over. Um, also the minister's conference, I'm the president of the CDC, and quite a few boards that I sit on that I'm proud to sit on, the trauma task force in Baltimore City, um, a part of the community boards that the Midtown Board, BHSB, and now, of course, the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. Mm-hmm. I want to touch first on your work as a pastor. What drew you to that? Did you always know that's something you wanted to do? How did you find that calling in your life? No, I did not always want to do that. Um, (laughs) I I think my brother was pastoring the church Mm -hmm. and he passed at an early age, 33. Mm -hmm. And before he passed, he said to me, the direction that the church needs to go as far as communal and being community bringing it to wholeness, I think you can do. It took me three years to make that decision. And then I made that decision. And the rest has been history because I focused on community. Anybody that knows me well know that that has been my focus, Baltimore City and community. It has totally been my focus. How does your background as a social worker sort of play into your work as a pastor? I mean, they're so different and yet so incredibly interconnected. You're absolutely right, uh, Megan. And thank you for just kind of weaving that together because in the history of social work, social work before it was professionalized, it was indigenous to community. We call it the helping profession. Helping was a part indigenous to our community, whether that is African, whether that is African-American and or other. It has been a part helping each other early on has been a part of that. I think social work moved into the second stage, what we call professionalization, um, where we started going after licensing and really moving it to its professional status at this point. But it was more indigenous. Helping each other was indigenous. So that link and alignment always fit for me because my early fathers in Baltimore, the Goon Squad and some of those others as local pastors, they were a part of my life as helping professionals. Mm -hmm. So it's just a natural tie for me. Mm -hmm. You deal with a lot of mental health issues, I'm sure, in all of your professions. Are you seeing there be a movement towards seeking the help people need for mental health rather than the stigma that we've seen in the past? Or do you feel like the stigma is still there? In some cases, it is still there. There's been progress, Mm -hmm. um, but there's still more progress that needs to take place in really understanding mental illness, what mental health looks like, but also what we use in the trauma task force, healing-centered engagement. Being able to understand that this is just mental illness and mental health is just a part of the healing-centered engagement that we want to do as far as holistic practitioners. Mm -hmm. 
it's interesting because, you know, you're providing that help in a church, which I think a lot of people turn to, but as a library, we now have social workers in our library. We have recovery specialists in our library. How important is it, do you feel like, for a community to have those resources in places like that where they trust, where they turn to and go to? And that is my vision, and it's been my vision for a long time, even as I work with the Ministers' Conference of Baltimore, Ministers' Conference Empowerment, CDC, and the conference. A part of my initiative uh, at the conference is how we become hubs to communities that we service. In other words, they allow us to know what they need and in our facilities and a part of our vision, we provide that. So we've been doing that across 14 districts for the last three or four years, really cementing faith leaders in their communities. I think that is going to be crucial and critical because what we found out over COVID, some people in our communities don't always go to University of Maryland, Johns Hopkins, and other total health. They don't always go to the hospital. They do come to places that are trusted. And there, I think that we have an opportunity here to be a phenomenal web to quite a few people and service hospitals as well. This is kind of in that same vein, but what roles do you feel like the churches play here in Baltimore? And where do you think there could be room for improvement going forward? I think that historically the churches, there are churches that are still doing the kind of work that I talked about. We saw that during COVID where they gave food, they came out of churches, gave food, um, but also served as places of testing, vaccines, and also health awareness and health information. I think that we've done it. When you look at the history of Baltimore, whether the IMA or whether other kind of organizations, even like BUILD organization, some of them are still doing that kind of work. I think that the improvement needs to be number one. When you look at a lot of what we do is not necessarily marketed on social media or anything like that. A lot of that is just what people have done down through the years. I think that there needs to be a more of what we call a revival of sort mm-hmm. of people really really, really making sure that we come out of our doors and really making sure that the community know what kind of services we provide, but also some of the kind of things that they need us to provide. The Free To Be More podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, presenting the Imagination Celebration, a month of magic for the library's littlest customers. All April, the Pratt has story walks, take and makes, art projects, and more. Stop by any Pratt location and get your imagination kit while supplies last. Details at prattlibrary.org. You mentioned the pandemic and the pandemic has sort of been such added trauma for so many people in Baltimore. So how are you helping with your church members who are facing maybe the loss of a loved one or the fear of a pandemic, sort of the things that we're all facing, how has that changed the way you have been taking care of your community over the past two years? It changed for us about two years ago. We started the community engagement officer, Gwen Brown, at Behavioral Health Systems of Baltimore, in which there's a board that I, that's a board that I sit on. We came together and started talking about what 
does it look like for faith institutions and communities to come together and have what we call healing us together, uh, trauma, community conversations. And we started doing that over a two-year period. We were doing it virtual, of course, and bringing leaders, but also community leaders and their families onto the virtual platform. And we use these, what they call the evidence-based self-model, which it talks about trauma, talks about what it looks like, all of the issues surrounding trauma, the resolve of trauma as far as putting safety plans together for psychologically, emotionally, physically, how to put plans together, but then how to talk about loss, how to talk about the types of loss, but then how do we move towards the future? Because just talking about the trauma itself without movement is a challenge. Mm-hmm. How do you sort of push people towards that movement that are maybe stuck in this sort of repetitive cycle of trauma? Because as much as we'd like to say post-pandemic, we're really not post-pandemic yet. No, we're not. Mm-mm. No, and that's very powerful because I think that uh, one of the things that's critical is we allow for space. We allow for space to talk about some of the kind of single events that it, because trauma is broken down into some single events, multiple and cumulative events, physical all of those kind of things. And we talk about what does it look like and what, what has happened to people, but we move from there to more of a healing-centered approach because what we want to avoid is trauma just becoming a catchphrase that people use and moving more from trauma to more of a healing-centered engagement from pathology to possibility, not just what's wrong with me, but what is right with me All of those things become critical for someone like me and also the communities that we serve and that we've been doing with healing us together, community um, conversations, because what we also know, we're working in tandem with, we use the resources that the city provides and other providers provide. But what we realize is that people need to have conversations. We can't always wait for literature to get to us. We need to have the same tools available to us. And we've seen some real, real good um, success stories from that. Mm -hmm. One thing, this is sort of a pandemic question, but a little bit on a different subject, is you write a lot about the intersection of science and spirituality. In the pandemic, there was a lot of misinformation that went around um, when it came from the science world. Before this, I don't think science was something that we like thought too much about debating. So how did you sort of take that on as a spiritual leader and as someone who's really familiar with science and the science of what this was? That's another good point, because I think at that particular time, just talking with people about the scientific methodology and what happens, especially when we got into, you know, the science community started talking about pulling together a vaccine clinical trial stage. I, because I was aware of science, I started talking with them more about not just the scientific community, but then also community members about clinical trials and stages that a vaccine needs to go through and that when the vaccine was developed, it was still in clinical trial stage three. Um, So that means it has not really reached. And yes, there was a possibility of, you know, of course, this would be challenging to take a vaccine, but 
at that particular time, we were losing more people at that time that was living. We were losing them in our church. We were losing them in our community. And then there still had to be a level of trust that they respected from me, but also from the community of science. I began to talk about, I called them fast talks, faith Mm -hmm. and science, um, faith and science talks. Mm -hmm. So I started having them every week so that people would start understanding that science was not disconnected with faith in its early history. It was Mm -hmm. not separated from faith. As a matter of fact, it was connected. And then I started talking to them about how we've gotten disconnected because, again, Sometimes it can be misinformation, but then showing them, I literally went into what was in the vaccine and to what extent the ingredients in the vaccine were lethal and or lethal and or there was some kind of things that it would still promote health within individuals. So it was for the last two years, it has reintroduced science to faith communities. Um, And I'm glad about that because Again, somebody that's always talking about science wasn't always getting a good rap. Um, <laughs> but but I think that not only had it been a challenge, but I think it was an opportunity as well. Did you see through those talks more people get more comfortable with the idea of being vaccinated or are there still people that you see that are very worried and still skeptical? Both and because, as you know, there's always been the stigma in community particularly when you talk about Henrietta Lacks, the syphilis studies, Tuskegee studies, that has all has still been embedded in the thoughts and emotions of people. And to overcome that is and was a hurdle at that particular time. And for some, they just did not trust the system of science. They did not. And, you know, they did take extra precaution. Some ended up, once I got the vaccine, you know, most people didn't think I would. But again, I felt that it was my responsibility. I'm a caregiver to my mom. I felt that it was a responsibility. Once I got it, I started to see uh, more people that was connected to me get the vaccine as well. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about another sort of pandemic that we've seen for generations here in Baltimore, and that is violence. And that's got to be very difficult as a pastor watching families come in day to day that are facing this in Baltimore City. So how do you approach that with your community? Again, I think it's both. And I talked to them about personal responsibility. Mm-hmm. I talked to them about, you know, because I didn't grow up when I did in Baltimore City where that was allowed um, mm-hmm. in the sense of we took responsibility within our community. And, you know, not only could my mom um, reprimand me, but the school teacher could reprimand me. I went to Utah Mossburn Elementary School, the the crossing guard, (laughs) the cafeteria worker. And when they called home and told my mom, she waited for me to come home because that was what we didn't have a lot of money, but we had support systems in place. And that's been my life call at this point because I argue that, and I'm worked with the We Our Us men's movement as well, that mm-hmm. moves throughout the nation of Islam and Christian leaders and community leaders. We have been working for the last three years together around the issue of violence and getting young men jobs, um, squeegee 
uh, young men. And we have been, I, I, I salute these guys whose families during the pandemic, um, we still went out and we made sure that we serviced these young men. There's still a long way to go, as we know, because mm-hmm. of the numbers in our city. I want it to be instantaneous, but the reality is, is that, of course, it is not just personal responsibility that has gone into what are the causes of violence. We know that the theory of broken windows theory, I'm a part of housing now because I believe that as we start doing some systemic, structural kind of things, also both of those together, while we work on the psyche and the emotional lives of our young men, and that is what we're doing um, with HUT, while we do both and, I think that we will start seeing some numbers drop. Again, some of the zero tolerance policies in Baltimore in the 90s and came into the year 2000, um, even though we were pulling people off the street. But what we did was we pulled them off the street for 10 years and locked them up. But I think that the children that we're dealing with now are the children of the people we locked up in some mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. So I think there is there must be dual responsibility. The police can't do it by themselves. The government can't do it by themselves. So I think that we are beginning to really get a handle on what is personal responsibility and collective responsibility as well. Need help with homework? The Pratt Library offers free live online tutoring for students. All you need is a Pratt Library e-card. Log on to prattlibrary.org today to sign up and let us help you hit the books. You mentioned the police, and certainly the police have been under the microscope since the death of Freddie Gray, which churches played a major part in quelling some of the violence in the city then. How do you think the city has changed since the death of Freddie Gray, and how much further do we have to go? (laughs) All good questions. I think we have a long way to go in the sense of, um, and as I said, I, I did some study. I was the principal investigator for the consent decree at Morgan State University, the community engagement portion. And being able to go around to the 14 districts and to talk to communities as a part of that study. And of course, I have police officers in my family. And I think a lot of damage, as the consent decree said, a lot of damage has been done by officers, by our system. As I stated, just locking people up, what we found, and I'm glad those policies are shifting, it doesn't work but also some of the conditions that even allow for some of the violence to go on in our communities, whether that is the black butterfly or the white L. Mm -hmm. All of those kinds of policies help shape where we are. And I think that it becomes a dual responsibility because when I was coming along, we had officer friendlies. I talked to officers during the consent decree. I met with community and then I met with officers And I would tell you that the greatest group that I had a chance to sit with were the officers because they started sharing. And then we brought the officers together with community. And what we found was once the community heard the stories of officers and how they were, of course, they're just people and families just like you. They struggle with the same kind of issues you do. But it was that engagement that began to bring healing. And I challenge even the consent decree that moving forward, this constant dialogue, 
presence of police offices where they build relationships with communities and not always move across districts. The police officers even talked about that. They don't even have time to spend real relational and communal work with communities as we did in the past that mm-hmm. got us officer friendlies. Mm-hmm. And is that because there's not enough of them that they don't have the time to be able to really embed in one community? That's what they said. <laughs> that is exactly what they said. It's not enough. And, you know, it, there's been a challenge with also even them getting the kind, because we were only supposed to spend no more than an hour and a half with them in each district. And mm-hmm. what they told us was that, you know, we spent almost two hours with them because ultimately what we found is that they wanted more therapeutic intervention as well. And they're mm-hmm. saying, that they have never been able, when we did the consent decree community engagement, they are saying that there were some things going on within the department at that time that just did not allow for the kind of self-care that they needed as well. Sure. You started the collaborative cultural competence training for the city police. What kind of difference do you think that makes? And do you think that that should be spread nationwide for police departments? Oh, yeah. I mean, I still, what makes me grieve is the fact that, you know, sometimes we go in, sometimes we go in with studies and, you know, that's the the challenge of the scientific community is sometimes we go in with studies, we drop sandwiches off to the community in the studies and we give them, you know, some kind of appreciation for what they do, but it needs to be, community engagement means more than just I drop by short term. It means a long-term engagement that benefits both parties. Mm-hmm. And I think we missed that. I think for police officers, I still think we haven't gotten that right. They mm-hmm. need to be engaged with mm-hmm. that community. Mm-hmm. We're kind of in a new era with the passing of the Healing City Act here in Baltimore. Talk to me about what your role is with the Healing City Act and how you feel about that being law here in Baltimore. Again, I was honored because Mm -hmm. anything dealing with healing, all of that, I I just think, and uh, Zeke Cohen and some of the others, again, I'm very close to all of them. I think that, and those that sit, not only with Healing City, but also on the task force, being able to look at both that. I am a component of, yes, personal responsibility internally, but then externally as well. Uh, We need to be able to, Um, really look at some of those policies. And and that's what we're doing now with the Trauma Task Force. We're looking at policies that are embedded within the departments where sometimes our institutions can cause further re-traumatization. And that's really what the Healing City Act is all about. Um, Really training, honing in so that our department heads and leads that do their great job but also that they are more sensitized to the stages of trauma in people's lives and not re-traumatize them with systems and structures, institutions that continue to perpetuate that. Um, We've been looking at policies. We've been looking at those policies that continue to do that. And we're at the beginning stages. But I think that when we talk about healing, it is also getting our communities to heal. So I'm glad to be a part of both aspects. I'm glad to be a part of challenging our faith leaders, challenging when we go through the community every week, three times a week, 
in communities around the city with the men's movement, challenging uh, leaders on the ground to be a part of us and to go out and go get your boys, go mm -hmm. get your girls and make sure, go get families, wrap your arms around them. That is not the responsibility of police and institutions. That's our responsibility. So mm -hmm. I think that there is a dual approach um, and I'm glad to be a part of, but of course it's going to take a little bit more time. Um, I think we're making some real positive steps. What's been the reaction from the community when you're talking about making these policy changes, sort of trying to right historical wrongs? Is there a buy-in from the community for what this movement is? I think so. Of course, you know, with anything, it there there's some challenges to it. Of mm -hmm. course, they want to see us all the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they, you know, this. This whole notion of, and so what we challenge, we go into communities, um, we go into communities and we, again, some of course think it's a challenge, but when we go into communities, we're just doing, planting the seed of community again. And I have to be able to be a part of that and applaud that any attempt to fix community is critical for me and not necessarily wait for government officers and government officials to fix it. I just don't think that waiting, I think there is a buy-in that we must do that together. Mm -hmm. I think the reaction has been good, not always excellent, um, mm -hmm. because sometimes of where the conditions that people in, but I've never gone into a community where there was not some form of reception from mothers, from fathers, even on Pennsylvania Avenue, you know, with those that are near the methadone center, even those men and women look up to us and say, thank you for going, doing excellent job. So mm -hmm. I think the reaction has been, as far as I'm concerned, it's been good. Mm -hmm. You're talking about looking at these policies and it's, as I said, generations of policies. So it's not, there's no quick fix to what this is. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Yeah. So how do you keep motivated knowing that it's sort of a mountain that we all have to climb? <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> you heard me call the Lord. <laughs> no, but um, I think that what makes me have hope, mm -hmm. uh, what gives me hope, though, is the fact that all of us together have to begin to do that. Not just one of us. I celebrate the men for being able to, they have families and um, being able to take responsibility and say, this is a part of what we did as well. Let's go get our boys. Uh, let's go get our communities and let's put that back together again. So when I get out there and all of these men are together, and then on Saturdays, the families come walk with us. COVID has slowed that down. Mm -hmm. um, but to see that it has been consistent throughout this process gives me hope to see that at least even in government and private industry that there has still been a coming together and people still seeing the need for change it's going to take a minute because we didn't get here overnight but when i see things like that it gives me hope mm -hmm. and my last question for you when you look at baltimore 10 20 30 years from now what does Baltimore as a healing city look like to you? Always the excellent questions. I, I think imagine, sociological imagination. 
if I can imagine the future and just by the work that we're doing, I think that what we're going to see, um, at least if we continue to, um, of course, I, I don't like the numbers continuing to go up as far as violence is concerned. But if we keep, stay consistent with the kind of things that we're doing as far as even challenging lawmakers about policy and I, my hat goes off to all of those officials and leaders mm -hmm. um, that saw fit to even begin to look at trauma from that perspective, but even begin to look at what does, um, recently there was the ARPA $100 million that's coming out for housing mm -hmm. and some of those things. Now that's going to be a lift, but all of that in the next five to 10 years and hopefully sooner, um, we begin to see a trend that is moving towards Baltimore really being a healing city. Some of the things that we're just beginning to do and policies we're beginning to put in place, I would say that the, I would see a trajectory that is um, moving towards um, an incline instead of a decline. Mm -hmm. But it's going to take work. I've got to be honest about that. It's going to take some work. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Kevin Daniels, thank you for the work that you're doing here. And thank you for your time today. Thank you. And I appreciate both of you. Inspire a love of science, technology, engineering, art, and math in your child today. The Pratt now has Steam to Go kits. Activity packs available for checkout in subjects like trucks and tools, rock and fossils, coding in bots, and more. Available with your Pratt Library card. More info at prattlibrary.org. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow the Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another Free to Be More conversation. Thanks for listening.